0: doctorlisao.com click the shop link or click the link below an ironic media production visit us at i r o n i c k hey there rockstar i'm so glad you're here i know you've been struggling for a while trying to figure out why things just aren't changing i've been there i get you i see you I know how hard you're trying. I'm here to let you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm here to teach you the simple steps to becoming that healthy, vibrant, best version of you. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back. I am so excited for our guest here today. I have Ari Witten with me, and today, May 10th, 2022, is his publishing day for his latest book, Eat for Energy. So you can find that over on Amazon or any place where books are sold. But if you're not familiar with Ari, Ari is the founder of the energy blueprint system, a comprehensive lifestyle and supplement program, which has helped more than 2 million people and counting experience optimal health, better performance and more energy. He's also the bestselling author of the ultimate guide to red light therapy and the host of the popular, the energy blueprint podcast, which features the world's leading natural health experts. In 2020, Ari was voted number one health influencer by Mindshare, the largest natural and functional medicine community. For more than 25 years, Ari has been dedicated to the study of human health and science. He holds a master's of science in human nutrition and functional medicine, a bachelor's of science in kinesiology. Certifications as a Corrective Exercise Specialist and Performance Enhancement Specialist from the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and he has completed all of the coursework for a clinical psychology PhD. You can find his podcasts, his programs, and his supplements at theenergyblueprint.com. I'm excited to talk to him today about mitochondrial health because it's something we're all hearing so much more about the last 10 years, and he has so much great research, and we're going to deep dive in. So are you ready? Ari Witten, thanks so much for being here. This thank is so great so to have you. And today is, I'm going to just share a secret with the audience for the actual day that we're recording because they don't, you know, it's your book publishing day. Congratulations. This is super exciting.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, it's a pleasure to to join you and to connect with you and do this
0: podcast with you. Yeah, so we're going to talk fatigue today. We're going to talk mitochondria. Um, what's so beautiful about it is that you make it so simple for people. So we don't have to have all of the doctorate degrees to really understand it. So if you are listening and you're just struggling with your energy, because let's get real who isn't. And especially after two and a half years of the baloney we've been going through, like of all of our energy, I think is tanked. So <laughs> let's first, I want to know, I want you to share with us how how did you even start deep diving into talking about fatigue, figuring out specifically adrenal fatigue, right? I'm a chiropractor and a naturopath. It's a term that's thrown around all the time. So I really want to, I want to hear everything. So fill me in.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, we could, I mean, we could talk for two hours just on adrenal fatigue.
0: (laughs) Uh, Right. So so
1: I'll I'll give you the the, the succinct version and I'll let you decide, you know, how deep you want to go in that. Um, So... I've been studying health science since I was a little kid. Um this is this is really a lifelong passion and obsession for me. Um started when I was about 12 years old. I'm 38 now, so over 25 years. Uh that that's really just again kind of lifelong obsession of tinkering with my physiology. You know, it's um I was biohacking long before biohacking was a term. Um, and, and kind of the original biohackers were really, were really bodybuilders and they were doing it 50 years ago, uh, back in the 1970s, um, tr- working to, you know, tinkering with all kinds of chemicals and steroids and stuff to try to alter their physiology and, um, and really sort of doing everything they could to do that, including lots of stupid stuff. I mean, lots of very <laughs> dangerous chemicals and, um, lots of, I mean, even injecting massive amounts of oil into your muscle tissue to create fake muscles and, uh, you know, um, not everything that was done in the name of biohacking was intelligent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in that world and my older brother was a personal trainer when I was, a, when I was a kid and was an uh, aspiring bodybuilder who was being mentored by professional bodybuilders. And so, and, and I, I was always gifted with science. I had a, a, t- a natural talent for science. I mean, I never tried hard in school, I was never pushed to do well. And I was never interested in school, but on, um, you know, national standardized tests in, in, in the United States, when I was in high school, um, I only discovered this a few years ago, but I look back at these, uh, these test scores that my parents pulled out of one of their safes a few years ago. And I was like 98th, 99th percentile in in science in the country, um, on these national standardized tests, um, really without without even trying without, without any sort of like interest in pushing myself to do my homework or study hard or anything like that. So I had that kind of natural talent for science and, um, and that was paired with this extreme obsession and passion for fitness and optimizing body composition, fat loss, muscle gain, the world of bodybuilding and Um, there's an exercise physiology component to that and a biomechanics component to that and a nutrition component to that. And that was really my world for many, many years for over a decade. And, uh, and I went on to do a bachelor's of science in kinesiology and with emphasis in fitness, nutrition, and health, and, um, was a personal trainer and nutritionist for many years. And you know, certifications from the national academy of sports medicine in terms of being a corrective exercise specialist, performance enhancement specialist, work with a lot of athletes, worked in a lot of rehab settings. Um, so that, you know, and, and, and optimizing body composition was probably the big focus. And then in my mid twenties, um, I was living in Israel, working on a, on a kibbutz, which is basically a communal farm. And I was doing, um, I was doing really hard manual labor um, working in the fish ponds. It was considered the most sort of physically intense uh job in 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 the on the farm. You know, I was working with a lot of like badass guys, really hardcore guys who were all former uh naval commandos and special forces who had been in wars and they were I mean like and commanders in the military in Israel and they were all just, you know, r- real kind of badasses. And um And I had to sort of fit into that. And, um, at the same time, I was with a group of a couple hundred, uh, young kids in their twenties, like I was, uh, from all around the world, from everywhere, from Australia to South America, to all over Europe. And, and, um, and all these kids come there and they live there together in sort of dormitories for, uh, six months or so. And everybody works a job for half the day, and then they study Hebrew for half the day and, um, and it, it, in exchange for a place to live and food to eat, basically. Yeah. And um, during that time, I was living in a, in a room, kind of a mold-infested room, and it was a kind of a party atmosphere. My, my dorm was 100 feet away from the club, which every Friday <laughs> and, and Saturday night was booming till 3 in the morning. And so you couldn't sleep if you wanted to, you know, during those times. And, uh, and it, yeah, it was, a, it was a party atmosphere. So I I was um, probably going to bed at 1pm, 1am and waking up at 5am to start my job. And then I, I guess I got exposed at some point, I think my best guess is from sharing a water bottle during a soccer game with some friends. Um, I got exposed to Epstein bar virus. And for people who don't know Epstein-Barr virus, almost everybody gets it during their life. It's over 90% of people um, get it before the age of 40, I believe. And uh, it's an interesting virus because it's kind of like COVID actually in the sense that if if you get it as a kid, it manifests mostly as a cold. And most parents who have a kid with Epstein-Barr virus don't even think anything of it. It's just a common cold. It's one of many viruses that cause a common cold, but for some reason, when you get into your later teen years or your twenties or your thirties, if you get it, then it often manifests very severely. And, uh, in the United States, we call it mononucleosis, and, uh, in other countries around the world, they call it either glandular fever or the kissing disease. Um, I wish I got it through something a little bit more sophisticated than sharing a water <laughs> bottle. But, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I got this, I was kind of, it manifested very severely. I started to have my whole throat become extremely swollen and painful and filled with pus. I went to the doctor, they thought maybe I had strep throat. They prescribed me penicillin, 10 day course of penicillin didn't do anything. Um, just got worse during that time. And then, you know, as it kept getting worse, I saw their doctors, nobody could figure it out. And then eventually someone thought to test me for Epstein-Barr virus. And, uh, and then like, you know, probably six weeks into the whole thing, they finally got a, the, the the labs back saying, you know, my titers were off the charts for Epstein-Barr virus. And at that point it was like, okay, you've got Epstein-Barr virus. Great. You figured it out, but, uh, we have. Nothing to offer you, you know you know there's nothing that they can really do for you, mm-hmm. so I wasn't really at, better off in any way for having that diagnosis. Um, meanwhile, you know, I'm in this environment, as I said, working a very hard manual labor job and with you know kind of surrounded by kind of these badass dudes with a lot of pressure on me, and um one of the problems with that that sort of exacerbated things further for me was I, I was pretty debilitated for several weeks. I couldn't, I I mean, I was pretty much bedridden and I couldn't eat. I couldn't swallow food because of how painful my throat was and filled with pus. And, uh, and so I was living off broth. I lost about 35 pounds in the span of a month because I couldn't eat food. And, um, and then I'm like weeks are going by, I'm not getting better. And, you know, everybody's around me, like not really understanding why I, you know, like maybe thinking I'm a hypochondriac or something yeah. like that. Like, Hey, you know why you, it's fine. If you get a cold and you're sick for a week and you can't work, but Hey, you know, it's been three, four weeks, you got to get back to work. And, and I also didn't want to be perceived as a sissy. And, you know, especially by these kind of badass guys I'm working with. So I'm pushing myself to go back to work and try to work in 110 degree Heat, doing hard manual labor job. And, uh, you know, that, that obviously didn't help my recovery process. Um, but the, the end result of all of this was I ended up being very sick for many, many months, uh, and, and having even after sort of the Epstein Barr virus symptoms went away, I was left with pretty debilitating chronic fatigue for almost a year after that. And. Being an athlete, being this fit guy and really into fitness and, and bodybuilding, weightlifting for my whole life prior to that, um, it really rocked my world because I had always been fit and healthy and energetic. And now, for the first time, this, this thing called energy was taken away from me. And I watched really as almost every aspect of my life deteriorated as a result of that. You know, my relationship with my girlfriend at the time my friendships with people, my ability to pursue my goals, and um, in, in school and career. Um, just hanging out with friends, playing a soccer match, you know, um, e- everything just kind of fell apart because I didn't have energy. And that was kind of the catalyst that shifted my focus from all these years of being interested in, in fitness and body ball- bodybuilding and body composition, um, to being fascinated with energy. And at the same time, you know, I was seeing doctors, conventional doctors for chronic fatigue, and they basically had nothing to offer. And I can, we can talk specifics of Mm -hmm. what they have to offer, um, if you'd like. And I can, I share some good data on that. Um, and then I, you know, saw a lot of alternative practitioners and functional medicine practitioners who all were diagnosing me with adrenal fatigue. I even got a test for cortisol test came back normal. I had normal cortisol. Now I, I I was still kind of inclined to believe in the adrenal fatigue thing. So I read tons of articles and watched lots of videos and, um, read books on adrenal fatigue and took all the herbs and followed all their prescriptions. And I actually, I was such a, I became such a believer in adrenal fatigue that when I discovered that conventional medicine, basically brushes off the whole thing of adrenal fatigue as nonsense and pseudoscience, it actually really irked me. And I sort of had like a personal vendetta to go stick it to them and, (laughs) and, and prove that adrenal fatigue really was real. And that's what I had. And, um, and so I started going, diving into the scientific literature on that. And, um, and this is where we could go into an hour long discussion just on this topic. But the, 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 the gist of it, the very short version, I'm happy to dig deeper if you want, but the very short version is I ended up basically discovering that I was wrong and that, you know, sort of my desire to stick at them and, and stick it to them and prove that adrenal fatigue was real really kind of got thrown back in my face as I started to dig into that scientific literature and really discover that actually the science doesn't really support the idea that adrenal fatigue is even a thing, let alone the primary cause of. Uh, most people's chronic fatigue. So um, at that point, that was kind of the, the big catalyst for me to shift all my focus from away from, you know, a decade plus of being obsessed with fat loss and body composition and muscle gain to energy, because I realized like these conventional doctors don't have it figured out alternative and functional medicine world are obsessed with this thing, adrenal fatigue. And that's, that's not what's really going on. So what, what the heck is really going on? And that's, that's, you know, really been my obsession for the last 10 years is kind of building out a real scientific framework of what regulates human energy levels.
0: So let's talk about it. Like, what are some of the the biggest things for fatigue? Because like you had just said, you get this diagnosis and I see it in the practice too. MDs are so easy to like pass that out along with fibromyalgia. Those are like the two diagnoses that people walk in this is what I have. We don't know what to do, right? Exactly. But we know, and I, I'm sure you see it too with fibromyalgia, like we've got to go back to nutrition. We're looking at so many things that way. Um, but so what are some of the, what have you found? What is it for, for fatigue? Yeah. If it's not adrenals then, because yeah. I know this is what people are saying, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because there are many dozens of different mechanisms in the body and, and you know, physiological pathways that are in one way or another related to energy. You know, if you've got low testosterone, you might have low energy as a symptom. If you've got low thyroid hormone, you might have low energy as a symptom. If you've got sleep deprivation, you're going to have low energy as a symptom. If you've got poor nutrition, you might have low energy as a symptom. If you've got, if let's say you actually do have low cortisol, let's say you've got Addison's disease, which is a, a rare, um, true adrenal insufficiency that can cause the symptom of fatigue. Um, let's, I mean, I I could go on. There's many, many other, I mean, we could talk about the pathways through which cortisol impacts it and blood sugar levels impacts it, um, and inflammation and oxidative stress. And we can talk about, um, thyroid hormone and testosterone and melatonin and Right. I, like-
0: I love the melatonin portion, but even let's talk about the inflammation. Let's talk about the mitochondria because first off, explain to everybody, you know, I remember biology class as the powerhouse of our cells, right? right. And it's something I think at least in the holistic world, people are talking more about mitochondria now. So let's deep dive in because there's yeah. so much more here. And I mean, even toxicity levels, like what have we been exposed to can damage so much, right? right. So,
1: right. So, yeah. We, we have this long list of things that are in one way or another directly or indirectly related to energy involved in energy production, but what is really controlling it, the thing that's the most upstream, that's actually regulating and like telling the big boss that's telling all the other systems of the body, um, whether or not we should be producing abundant energy or very little energy is actually mitochondria. And as, as you said, we all learned about mitochondria in high school and college biology class, and even in medical school, really as this sort of, um, just sort of this mindless energy generator, these mindless energy generators that are in our cells that just sort of take in carbs and fats and pump out energy. Um, they are certainly not presented as any kind of big boss. That's really upstream. That's deciding things. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, you, they just take in carbs and fats. They pump out energy. Well, it turns out in the last, uh, 10 years, there's been a pretty enormous, um, sort of revolution around our understanding of mitochondria. That's still actually not really well-known, um, but is revolutionary in terms of understanding health. And that is that mitochondria actually have another role beyond their role as energy generators. And that is a role in cellular defense they are, it turns out mitochondria are basically like the canaries in the coal mine in our body. They, they are exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors whose job is not only to produce energy, but to decide whether or not they should be producing energy. And the way that they do that is by constantly taking samples of their environment, basically asking the question, is it safe to produce energy? Is it safe to produce energy or are we under attack? And basically, um, mitochondria have so they have these two functions: energy generation, cellular defense. And these two roles are mutually exclusive. So, to the extent that mitochondria are picking up on um, signals that suggest that there are, the body's under attack, they turn down the dial on energy production and shift towards cell, shift resources towards cellular defense. So, um, if this sounds like abstract or like a weird concept, just consider, uh, what was one of the main symptoms you had the last time you had a cold or a flu or COVID fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is literally the mitochondria going, Hey, we're under attack. Let's turn down bio and energy production. And this is actually, uh, an adaptive mechanism. Okay, this is part of our body's innate intelligence. How we respond to uh, an infection or uh, an injury will do the same thing. Like if you severely, you know, scrape your body up, you fall down the side of a cliff, or you sprain your ankle or break a leg or something like that, um, you will have a reaction where your body has much less energy. Um, and the reason why is because mitochondria can sense the presence of Um, a few different things. They can sense the presence of increased levels of inflate inflammation, inflammatory cytokines, um, oxidative stress and cellular damage. And by virtue of detecting those three things, they can basically sense the presence of almost every type of stressor imaginable. And in response to extreme to, to higher levels of these kinds of stressors, um, or threats present in the body, they. Again, turn down the dial on energy. Shift resources towards cellular defense. So, imagine, uh, let's say you're in the Ukraine right now, and you're in some you know inner city environment. And now the Russians are attacking. They throw poison gas in the streets, and uh, you know you've got this, this this poison gas that's that's going through the air. It, it would be a terrible mistake to sort of go about your business as normal and just say, oh yeah, it looks like a beautiful day outside. Let's leave the windows open and let the fresh air in. Let's go for a walk outside, right? When you're under attack, you seal the windows off. You seal the doors off, you lock yourself inside. And and that's what mitochondria do. Um, and that's what their role is to orchestrate, uh, and coordinate that kind of response in the body, uh, in response to being under attack. So from this model basically our, our energy levels are essentially a reflection of the degree to which our mitochondria are picking up on threats and stresses in our environment. And in response to any number of like your total body stress load, everything from nutritional stressors to sleep deprivation, to psychological stress, to light deficiencies and toxicities, um, to environmental toxicants, to you name it, every type of stressor imaginable, they are going to turn down the dial on energy production because that's how millions of years of evolution built us to survive periods of of stress.
0: So then a couple of light bulbs went off for me because I feel like we're seeing a lot of, um, with like long haulers. And what I have seen is that a lot of these people have had a lot of different toxic environments that they might not have realized beforehand. So here their mitochondria are already stressed. And then they had that additional stress of this, you know, disease process or this virus. And so therefore their body just can't kick out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Yeah. And and there
1: is, there is an element, this is introducing a bit more complexity, um, but there is, there is an argument in in the literature um, to support kind of an idea of the body, excuse me, the body being, Locked into this cell defense mode, what's called in in literature by by a researcher named uh, Dr. Robert Navio, who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's kind of the main scientist who discovered this, and he coined the term the cell danger response. And um, I've been fortunate enough to actually spend some time with him in person, and he he argues that it's possible for the body to become actually locked into the cell danger response, even maybe when the environment is, um, is okay. So as an analogy to kind of understand everything I've talked about, um, think of what bears and squirrels and some other animals do during harsh winters, when, when the environment gets very harsh, they, they shut things down. They slow their physiology way down. They basically, they go into hibernation, which is basically like a super deep sleep. Where their physiology is sort of just doing enough to stay alive, but totally minimizing all energy production and energy expenditure so that you don't really need to even be awake and find food. You can just sleep for months, basically. Now, um, other animals, other animal species, uh, simpler animal species like um, roundworms and many animal species, even things like tardigrades, which are these little microscopic water bears that are in every drop of water (laughs) around us. Um, They basically, it's been shown that they can survive all kinds of extreme environmental circumstances. Um, Everything from extremes of temperature, being in outer space and being in like negative pressure environments or super high pressure environments, a hundred degrees below freezing or at burning hot temperatures, uh, and, and they can survive by basically being in a state of dormancy, um, in worms, it's called dour and in, ex- in, in response to being exposed, exposed to harsh environments, they essentially turn down their physiology, they sh- sort of shut things down to the extent where they're almost dead, but they're still technically alive such that when. The environment gets safer; the they can turn their physiology back on and sort of come to life, right? Like a like a bear or other mammals coming out of hibernation. Um, There is an argument that sort of people can get turned into the cell danger response; their physiology can kind of get shut down, and then they have difficulty. Their bodies have difficulty sort of turning things back on, even when the environment is safe.
0: So let's talk about that because you think of a mom that's had her babies. Um, and then, you know, running for the next 10 years of your life, 20 years of your life and all of this stuff. And then we end up at that moment where it's like, nothing is working, you know, and, and then they chalk it up to, Oh, it's perimenopause, whatever it is. Right. Um, they throw it at this. So for a woman that's listening right now, that's just really like, yeah, I'm fatigued. I'm living on coffee all day long or whatever it is. And we know better. How would you tell them? Or what would you tell them to do? How can we get out of this response of being, you know, in hibernation or being that roundworm? in essence
1: yeah so it's a bit of a complex answer it's, it's not a super simple answer but the, there's two components to it okay the first component is you have to do everything possible to create the signals towards your cells towards your brain that you are in a safe environment as long as your body's continuing to get signals that it's unsafe that it's under attack. Okay. And even caffeine consumption, I mean, we can talk deep about caffeine and sort of the mechanisms of what's going on, but just, just the element of, uh, the fact that it's stimulating adrenaline, um, is itself kind of stimulating more of a sympathetic nervous system state. And that is to some extent synonymous with a threat response. Um, if you are not optimizing your sleep if you're chronically undersleeping and forcing yourself to wake up with an alarm clock with half an hour an hour 2 hours less sleep than your body needs that's it's under threat it's under attack if you are not putting good nutrition good food into your body um and you're eating processed food that's disrupting your gut barrier you're going to have undigested food particles you're going to have uh, bacterial endotoxins leaking into your blood which we know, by the way, are linked with chronic fatigue, and uh, that creates an inflammatory response that's going to create another signal that your body's under attack. If you're drinking alcohol every night, if you're being exposed to lots of environmental exposures because you're putting all kinds of personal care products in your body with uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals or heavy metals and things like that, if you're eating food with heavy metals, if you're breathing in lots of chemicals from the rooms, the office space you're in, or your home, off-gassing chemicals or people's perfumes and all kinds of things like that. All of these uh, are are going to be perceived by your body as threat signals. So, to you know, sort of the first fundamental task is removing as many triggers of the danger response as possible, creating a really safe environment for your body so it can get the message. That it's safe it's safe to turn the energy producing machinery back on that's that's number one the second key aspect of this is to understand that um, mitochondria in our cells first of all i should say virtually all of the trillions of cells in our body from our brain to our heart to our muscles to our liver to our intestines to our hormone producing glands depend almost entirely on the energy produced by mitochondria. Now, if those mitochondria are not producing enough energy, um, every job that those tissues that I just mentioned do, whether it's the brain or your thyroid gland or your liver or whatever is, is going to suffer is going to not, it's going to do its job less well. Now, you have to also understand that mitochondria aren't just these static creatures that either are in the on or off position. Kind of that's that's a little bit of the picture I've painted so far, is really like just we have these mitochondria in our cells, they produce energy, but to the extent that we're exposed to environmental stressors, they're turning down energy production. There's one other key piece of this story, which is we can either Have cells that are filled with mitochondria, big, strong, healthy mitochondria, and lots of them, or we can have cells filled with weak, fragile, dysfunctional mitochondria, and the most important part, very few of them. Okay, and to give you some specific numbers, it's been shown that on average, people lose about 10% of their mitochondrial capacity with each decade of life, such that a 70 year old, a typical 70 year old, has only about 25% of the mitochondrial capacity of a young adult. Now, what's really interesting about that. And, and by the way, they do these studies by physically taking muscle biopsies, sticking a big hollow needle into a person's thigh, pulling out a chunk of muscle tissue, sticking it under a microscope and literally counting the number of mitochondria that, that are in those, those cells, Um, it's also been shown This is a really important part because um, many people listening to this might think, based on what I just said, "Oh, that really sucks that we lose mitochondria with aging."
0: But it's a it's
1: it's, yeah, it's 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 been shown that in seventy-year-olds who are lifelong athletes and exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young adult.
0: I love it. Okay.
1: So, so what this means is that the loss of mitochondria is not a function of aging per se it's not a natural process of aging it is actually the result of modern lifestyles leading to uh, w- which which are deficient in hormetic stress which are deficient in the stimulus that challenges mitochondria and makes them work and and hormetic stress is um there are many different types of hormetic stressors Uh, exercise, all the different subtypes of exercise, things like breath, holding things like fasting, heat, exposure, cold exposure, uh, many different types of phytochemicals are, uh, in this category of hormetic stressors. They temporarily stress your mitochondria, but in the process, stimulate them to grow stronger in the same way, just to maybe for people to visualize this dynamic better, um, if you work a muscle by challenging it, by lifting weight, it stimulates it to grow you're, you're challenging it and it responds to that challenge by adapting, by growing stronger and bigger. On the other hand, if you don't stimulate a muscle, let's say you've broken a bone and you've put that arm or that leg in a cast, what happens literally just in the span of six or eight weeks of wearing a cast and not using that muscle tissue, the body basically says, Hey, we don't need all this energetically demanding energetically costly tissue, it's obviously not needed for survival. So let's get rid of it. And the the body's ruthless about getting rid of tissue that is not needed for survival. So to to the extent that in the span of two months of wearing a cast, your arm or your leg muscles will shrink to half the size of the other ones. Okay. So if that happens in two months, you can imagine what happens internally at the cellular level, at the mitochondrial Mm -hmm. level over years and decades of, of disuse of not challenging those mitochondria with hormetic stress. So the, the modern lifestyle is because it's devoid for the most part of these various hormetic stressors, the body goes, Hey, I guess we don't need so much mitochondria. Let's, let's start dumping, let's these, let's start letting them, letting them go away. Now, just to tie things together, whether, or whether you have cells filled with lots of mitochondria or very few mitochondria relates back into the cell danger response relates back into, um, what I was describing as far as mitochondria's role in, um, in basically being able to handle stressors. Okay. This is something I call the resilience threshold. So, Uh, Let's imagine there's a a building on fire right next to us. You and I are together right now. There's a building on fire next to us. Is it easier for me to go try to put that fire out by myself? Or if I have your help?
0: We're both going to do this together. Yeah,
1: right. And and maybe if we have even three more
0: people to
1: to help us out, it's going to be even way easier. We're much more likely to be effective in in actually putting it out now. What this, the same thing happens internally at the mitochondrial level, because mitochondria are, are taxed in responding to stressors. The more mitochondria you have, the more that that workload of responding to that stressor gets spread across a, a, a larger number of mitochondria who can help out to produce energy, to meet that, that demand. If you lack mitochondria, they're much the, the demand on each individual one is much higher they're much more likely to exceed their threshold their capacity to respond to that stressor i'm much more likely to not be able to put out that fire by myself and the fire to just go out of control and destroy the building before i can put it out right and um and if that happens then I've exceeded that resilience threshold and that's where you get the symptom of fatigue. That's where the mitochondria will actually turn off or turn down energy production and shift resources towards cellular defense. When they're, um, trying to meet a level of stress that they're unable to adequately respond to and maintain health and homeostasis and high energy levels. So the more mitochondria you have in your cells, the more robust your mitochondrial network is, the more, the higher your resilience threshold, the bigger, your capacity, the bigger, your resilience and resistance to a broad range of stressors to, to, um, be able to meet that energetic demand and maintain health in homeostasis and high energy levels. So again, just to recap, it's the combination of basically, um, the, the two things that we need to work on are getting rid of a lot of these cell danger response triggers, the things that are triggering our mitochondria into thinking that they're unsafe and build up our mitochondrial network through mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria from scratch, which we can do with hormetic stress and, um, create bigger, stronger, you know, cells that are filled with bigger, stronger mitochondria and much more of them.
0: I love it. And it's always simple strategies. I always want to remind everybody like where you are now is not where you were 20 years ago. And it's always this process of all of us, right? Because I've even had patients say it to me. They're like, you know, Dr. Lisa, your health is here. I just want to be here. And it's always a simple baby steps. And so by cleaning things up, but then let's start talking about Those hormetic stresses. Obviously, let's start exercising if you're not doing that right now. But I know you've also mentioned some other things regarding circadian rhythm, regarding our feasting and famine time periods. Because I know you've said it, and I see it too. Where I will start people up with intermittent fasting, and we start out with some people literally at ten hours. It's it's sad because I didn't realize how many people actually wake up in the middle of the night for a snack. And so we need to look at that. So let's deep dive into some of these strategies that they can implement. And you don't have to do it all this weekend. Again, it's a process mm-hmm. and your body, like I always give your body good stuff. It's going to crave even more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Where do you want to start?
0: Oh, let's, well, let's start out. Let's, um, let's start out with, with uh, fasting. Let's do that. I do want to also cover, melatonin, because I think that's a huge thing. Okay, cool. All right.
1: So let's let's lump everything under the broad umbrella of circadian rhythm. Yes. Okay, so um, we have we have a circadian rhythm, a central clock in the brain, and we have peripheral clocks throughout our tissues. Um, It's a more recent scientific discovery that we've kind of discovered, oh, we have these circadian clocks in our liver and in our muscles and in our skin and in our eyes and in our heart. And, you know, and our, uh, you know, all these different tissues of our body, the central clock in the brain is primarily responsive to light inputs. And the peripheral clocks are primarily responsive to nutritional inputs. Now, in order to optimize our, the entirety of our circadian rhythm, which in turn impacts on a number of really important things in our physiology. Number one is our sleep and wake cycles. Okay. So how deeply you sleep every night is largely a function of your circadian rhythm health. This is not a, this is not an insignificant thing, right? Like, um, we, we take sleep for granted a little bit, but, um, it just, just consider the fact for a moment. Just think about this. We've normalized to it, but just think about the fact that every night through no volition of your own your brain enters an entirely different state of consciousness for, for eight, eight, eight or so hours. And then again, the next morning, through no volition of your own, through these physiological changes, hormones and different neurotransmitters, um, you, you now enter another state of consciousness, waking consciousness. Okay. So this is having a huge impact on sleep and wake cycles clearly. Um, And it's important to understand that sleep and energy are two sides of the same coin and they are linked by the circadian rhythm. So if your circadian rhythm is not strong, you're going to have poor sleep and poor energy levels. They go together. Mm -hmm. The other aspect that's that's critical to understand is that the circadian rhythm impacts on many, many different neurotransmitters and hormones that impact on virtually everything in our physiology. So, um, it impacts upon neurotransmitters like dopamine, which impacts on mood and motivation and drive. Um, it impacts on serotonin, which affects joy and happiness, which also indirectly, you know, sort of interfaces with energy levels. Um, it's hard to be depressed and, and highly energetic at the same time. Um, GABA, which is a sort of our relaxing neurotransmitter that helps us calm down, especially before bed. Um, orexin which is a wakefulness and, and sort of energy neurotransmitter um, it also impacts heavily on many different hormones that directly tie into the circadian rhythm like thyroid hormone like cortisol like um, testosterone like growth hormone like melatonin and also insulin to a large extent um, when your circadian rhythm and sleep is non-optimal you will become insulin resistant very quickly so, and all those different hormones, I mean, each one of them deserves their own discussion, but growth hormones involved in sleep quality and cellular regeneration and healing testosterone, of course, involved in, in libido and energy and many, many different cellular processes, thyroid hormone and metabolism and driving cellular energy production and, and so on. Um, so all of those together, you know, are between our, and I should also mention melatonin, as a critically important hormone. And there, we'll talk more about that. Um, all of those hormones together are being hugely impacted by your circadian rhythm. Okay. So if you don't, if you're not optimizing your circadian rhythm, you have widespread consequences in basically every system of the body, because between all those different neurotransmitters and hormones, everything is affected. Um, in addition, we have all these peripheral clocks throughout the body that, um, also need to be optimized for those cellular and mitochondrial processes to be optimized. They also need to be getting the right circadian inputs. So the central clocks, primarily responsive to light inputs. The peripheral clocks are primarily responsive to food inputs. And one of the most important strategies that we need to optimize there is our, uh, eating and fasting windows. We know from research by, um, Satchitananda Panda, um, a, a, a famous circadian rhythm researcher who's written a book on the topic, um, that most Americans have, uh, an eating window between 13 to 16 hours a day. What's optimal is somewhere between six to 10 hours a day. And if we, if we don't do that, if we have a, 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 an eating window of 13 to 16 hours a day, Number one, we are creating disharmony and dyssynchrony between our circadian clocks, between the central and the peripheral clocks chronically. Um, so everything I just mentioned, all those neurotransmitters and hormones are, are optimal as a result of that. In addition, there are processes that occur at the cellular and mitochondrial level, like autophagy and like mitophagy, which is basically, which is autophagy, but at the mitochondrial level. And these are basically cellular cleanup processes The the cell basically breaks down and recycles, um, dysfunctional and worn out, broken cell parts and mitochondria and rebuilds new healthy ones. If your body doesn't have the time and the space to go into that process adequately, and that process depends on being in a fasted state of physiology for a long enough period of time each night. So if you're, impeding that by having too long of a feeding window each day, then you're chronically functioning today on yesterday's worn out, broken down cellular and mitochondrial parts. You are not allowing your body to clean up the damaged cell parts and mitochondria. And so that's another sort of critical element of how disrupted circadian rhythm um, will tie into poor energy levels is, is by not allowing the mitochondria to, to heal and regenerate each night. So there's many, many, many different mechanisms. One other one I'll mention here is melatonin. Okay. Yeah. So melatonin is most people often think of it as like, oh yeah, melatonin's a sleep supplement. Well, melatonin's a hormone, first right. of all, it's a hormone produced in our body, um, and it's prime it's, it's produced by the pineal gland in the brain. Okay. There's a few cool layers to this. So the pineal gland in the brain is part of this circadian clock mechanism. And in response to light entering the eyes, hitting receptors, and then feeding back through nerves into the circadian clock of brain. That's part of what gives your pineal gland. The cue that's mostly what gives your pineal gland, the clue, uh, the, the cue of how, when to produce melatonin and how much. Now in the modern world, unfortunately, we have lots of artificial light at night. And um, as a result of modern electronics and TVs and computers and phones and home lighting and all this stuff, it's been shown just to give you a a data point to understand the magnitude of this. It's been shown that just being in in your home under standard indoor home lighting, fluorescent LED home lighting, suppresses melatonin levels by in most people by upwards of 70%. Wow. Okay. Now. Melatonin is not just a sleep supplement and it's not just a sleep hormone that helps you sleep. It's actually, it has incredibly important cellular protective properties. And it turns out that it's basically the most important mitochondrial antioxidant. Okay. So melatonin gets into your mitochondria and it protects them from damage. It also interacts with all the internal antioxidant systems inside of mitochondria that produce this. This is really how our cells control and and mitigate, prevent damage from accumulating through this internal antioxidant system called the A R E, the antioxidant response element. And um, it depends upon these powerful internal antioxidants like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase. And met- melatonin is designed to get in there every night, get into your mitochondria, saturate your mitochondria, protect them from damage, so your mitochondria don't accumulate damage, and uh, and recharge that internal antioxidant system, so the cells and the mitochondria can protect themselves from stressors the, the, the next day. So what happens, and and I will also mention melatonin has also been shown uh, to have powerful neuroprotective properties and powerful anti-cancer properties.
0: Right.
1: And and this is many, many other effects. But let's just look at the neuroprotective cancer protective mitochondrial protective uh, aspects of it. So what happens if you uh, every night, month after month, year after year, decade after decade are chronically suppressing your body's production of this critical mitochondrial protective brain protective anti-cancer hormone by 50, 70,
0: 80%, right? It's not good. No, (laughs) you're you're
1: going to massively increase your risk of all those problems of Mm -hmm. not only cancer and brain diseases, but fatigue, accumulation of dysfunctional mitochondria. Yeah. So sorry, did you want to jump in? No, no,
0: no, go ahead. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, now, there's one other really cool layer to the story of melatonin, that um, is very little known, it's, it's really sort of a brand new discovery. And, and that is actually that um, melatonin, it turns out is so important to our mitochondria, that our mitochondria actually produce their own supply of melatonin.
0: This is fascinating to me. I love okay, so how do we do this? Because if you've got mitochondria throughout the entire body.
1: Mm -hmm. So, so this melatonin is being produced at the cellular level, not just from the pineal gland in the brain Mm -hmm. into the blood in the cells, they're producing it. And we know from animal experiments now where they take out the pineal gland, that, uh, it doesn't actually affect the amount of melatonin in the mitochondria.
0: That is Um, very fascinating.
1: Right. So, um, thanks to the work of, uh, probably the most prolific melatonin researcher, a guy named Russell Ryder, um, R E I T E R. Um, he has, he's been sort of the guy who's done the experiments to really discover this. And, um, and, and they've also discovered how to increase this, uh, cellular production of melatonin and the primary thing it responds to turns out it's on a subject I've written a book about. Um, which is red and near infrared light, sunlight, um, we can either get it from sun sunlight exposure, sunbathing, or, uh, from red and near infrared light therapy, but it's specifically those wavelengths of light in red and near infrared range, which is about 600 to 900 nanometers that, uh, that stimulates the mitochondria to, to increase their supply of melatonin. So this is yet another reason why, um, we can't replace the benefits of sunlight with just a vitamin d pill we get much more from the sun than just vitamin d and this is i think i think within 5 years the melatonin this this whole melatonin story people are going to realize how incredibly central it is to our overall health and longevity mm-hmm. and disease prevention that this melatonin molecule is really playing a very very central role in preventing the accumulation of cellular and dna damage that results in so much, uh, of so many diseases like cancer and also the, the aging process itself. So anyway, th- those are all, um, critically important aspects of optimizing circadian rhythm and optimizing melatonin levels to ultimately bolster our mitochondrial health, keep our mitochondria healthy, which not only helps slow aging and prevent disease, but more immediately increases energy production.
0: I love it. And that's actually one of the things over the course of the last year, I even remember seeing studies and you probably saw it too, where they were um, found that those that were dealing with COVID had better results when supplementing with melatonin, like that was in the literature coming out. Right. So
1: um, yeah, there's a number of studies that have very clearly shown that melatonin is hugely beneficial in preventing severe outcomes. Yeah, But let's not say that too loudly because
0: we might get censored. Yeah, well, <laughs> we can find the research, even though it might just not be fact-checked. Yeah, this But is, all right, Ari, this, is- this has been so fascinating. I love having you on here with all of this information. And we could talk for hours, but I know you have a busy schedule. Um, share with them where they can find your book and your podcast and everything else.
1: Yeah, so uh, my new book uh, just come, came out today, May 10th. Um, it's published with Hay house and it is called eat for energy, how to beat fatigue, supercharge your mitochondria and unlock all day energy. And, uh, I'll give you a brief, very brief overview of the book. Basically, uh, the first chapter is kind of understanding how our mitochondria work, which we talked a bit about here and that the dual role and, and how they function in those dual roles. Uh, chapter, whatever the next chapter is chapter two is, um, is all about circadian rhythm optimization. And then I get into body composition optimization. So how lose losing fat and increasing muscle mass. That's, that's another key lever to pull on, to optimize your mitochondrial health and energy production. Um, blood sugar regulation is the next chapter hugely important. Over 80% of, uh, of people are regularly on a daily basis, dipping into, I shouldn't say dipping spiking into, um, either the pre-diabetic or diabetic ranges of blood sugar of hyperglycemia and one-third of adults, uh, are, uh, suffer from reactive hypoglycemia where they are dipping into low blood sugar, uh, two to five hours after a meal. And a huge portion of people are obviously fluctuating between the two and have glycemic variability, which is major, major driver of, uh, energy issues. So how do we optimize that? Um, and then the next chapter is on gut health. And of course the gut is massively important. We have a gut brain access. We have a gut mitochondria access. How do we optimize gut health to support that? Um, all the, all every, all the physiological systems that, uh, the gut is connected to in the body. And, uh, the next chapter is on brain health and optimizing that and there's several different important mechanisms and. Uh, in the brain that relate to to regulating energy levels as well as neurotransmitter optimization and uh, and then the, the part two of the book is all about superfoods and supplements science backed supplements for enhancing energy production and this isn 't like hey, take caffeine and stimulants right right no. um, actually <laughs> you didn 't get a chance to talk about it, but caffeine and yeah. stimulants are actually very counterproductive for your energy, they give you a, an immediate quick boost, but if you rely on them on a daily basis, they will destroy your energy levels. Right. So, um, in, in, I, this one chapter alone on supplements is worth the entire price of the book easily. Cause it, you just, you can't find that information compiled like that anywhere else to have all of this list of supplements that have proven research to support, um, enhancing mitochondrial health, enhancing more importantly, the end result of increased energy levels. So that's sort of a, a brief overview of what's in the book. And um sorry, welcome to Costa Rica. My power just went out. So oh my my battery, <laughs> that's my battery backup uh system that's beeping there. So please don't mind that. This is a normal <laughs> daily occurrence here in Costa Rica. Um so yeah, that's that's an overview of the book and um you know it's it's absolutely packed with with science-backed strategies to optimize your energy levels and brain function and longevity and so much more and the the last thing i'll say on it is um this is not some you know wacky extreme diet where i'm saying hey everybody else has got it wrong really it's not it's not uh, low fat and it's not vegan and it's not paleo and it's not keto. Everybody's got it wrong. Really. It's this other, the, the one true best human diet is this thing. It's not like that at all. This is a totally non-dogmatic approach to nutrition. It's very flexible. I'm basically giving you dozens. I'm like, like a buffet of dozens of different nutritional strategies that you can pick and choose from and implement them flexibly in your life and implement them, they can be plugged into any dietary pattern that you might be on now, whether you're eating keto or vegan, Perfect. paleo or anything else. So um, yeah, it's it's really sort of like a buffet in that sense, non-dogmatic that. buffet.
0: And they can find this at your website, right? Theenergyblueprint.com? Yeah, the
1: best place. Just go to Amazon. and Okay. Have it there.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Ari. This has been so fabulous. And I know everybody is going to gain all sorts of nuggets of information from it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure
0: did you like that episode? I absolutely love having the opportunity to interview some of the best and brightest guests and to share them with all of you. So if I may ask you a huge favor, I would love it if you went on over to Apple podcast and gave us a review. I personally read each and every one of them as they come in and I am always inspired by your feedback. So I would be so appreciative if you did that. And here is the legalese.